It's something that other people do which really, really annoys us. It just gets under our skin, we get frustrated, we get irritated, we get annoyed, aggravated, exasperated, and we just loathe that thing that someone else does. Now, I'm guessing that there is a few pet peeves out here. And um, I'm not going to take a, a survey or show of hands, but I'm going to put up some pet peeves on the screen, and if they resonate with you, then uh, you can let me know. So this is the first one. This is the first pet peeve that a lot of people have. People who chew really loudly or chew with their mouths open. Yeah? There's a few. Yep. Uh, what about this one? Constant lateness. So chronic, always late all the time. They're meeting with you. They're never there on time. They're late to work, etc. Is that is that a pet peeve that some of you have with other people? Don't say yes. It's something that I do because everyone will look at you. All right, what about this one? Dishes, dirty dishes in the sink. That reminds me of uh, that photo was taken in my flat. Um, <laughs> that. You think I'm joking, but uh, that's not. <laughs> All right, this one, now this one is possibly only applicable to half the population. So pet peeve is when people, other people don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. And statistically, a recent survey, I know all the women are shaking their heads in disbelief, but apparently 60% of men don't wash their hands after going to the toilet. And what do men do pretty much straight after they've gone to the toilet? They reach for a handshake, don't they? Don't they? This one may also um, apply to just the men. Leaving the toilet seat up. <laughs> I heard recently some very brave... I heard recently some very brave man say, um, he said, how many times... He said, you know, you might put the seat down for her but how many times does she put the seat up for you? And I decided that that guy must really like living in a dog box. Um, but there is a couple of creative ways you could kind of get around this, you know, chain it down, or even just a handy roll of duct tape seems to work. What about this one, talking in a movie? Talking during a movie, especially on a cell phone. Pet peeve? Especially when you pay like 15 bucks. Or queue jumpers? You know, they just, you're there in the queue and they kind of sneakily slide on in or get in there or someone's holding their place. This one, personal grooming in public places. Could be clipping the nails, could be applying makeup, could be brushing your hair, if that's something you do. What about those people who are repeat button pushers? So you're in the elevator or you're at the pedestrian crossing and you've clearly pushed the button but they come in and also push the button as if it's going to go twice as fast because they push the button. Maybe that's not you, maybe that's just me. What about this one? Airline seat recliners. There's two types of people in the world, isn't there? Those who recline and those who don't. This is my personal pet peeve. You pull into the car park and you find a car <laughs> that has taken up two parking spaces. Now, I appreciate that some of those parking spaces are pretty tight, okay? But that is just rude and just inconsiderate of others. And what makes it worse is when it's a flash car. 
when it's like a Range Rover or a Porsche or something. So not only are those people terrible at parking, but they're obviously filthy rich enough to be able to uh, afford an expensive car. And there aren't, the only reason they're parking like that is so their car doesn't get scratches or scrapes, isn't it? That is right. Some people are like, yeah, that's right. That's why I park like that. You know, I think actually some of those pet peeves that we have go a little bit deeper than just general frustration or annoyance. And I think that's because we have an inbuilt sense of injustice. We don't like seeing bad people get the good stuff in life. And perhaps you're like me, you read the news, you watch the news, you read the headlines, and you just wonder to yourself, how can that musician be so depraved and yet sell so many records? How can that politician be so corrupt and yet hold that office? How can that CEO be so abusive and yet make so much money? How can that sports star clearly have so many addictions and yet be so famous on the field? How can that priest be so influential and yet hurt so many people? Maybe for you, maybe for you it's a bit more personal. You've got a colleague at work and they cut corners and yet they're the ones who are awarded the promotion. Perhaps you're at school and you're trying to make some friends, but the kids who are popular are the ones who never follow the rules. Perhaps you know this mean mum and yet everything just seems to go her way. Or maybe you've got a bitter old neighbour down the street who has the most exclusive house. You know, if we thought that they were good people, then chances are we'd be happy for their success. But when they're bad people who are so obviously bad, it's really hard to overlook their faults and their failings. We can't just say, look, we'll ignore what they post online because, because they get results for the business. We can't do that. Why, why can't we do that? Well, I think it's possibly because Inbuilt in us, hardwired in us, is a sense that that is not the way the world is supposed to work. That is not the way things are meant to be. And so we wrestle with this question, why do good things happen to bad people? Perhaps you've struggled with that question. Perhaps you are struggling with that question. Because ultimately that question is a question about the goodness of God, isn't it? At the core of it, it questions, is there any justice in the world? Is there any fairness in the world? You know, plenty of people have wrestled with that question and walked away from God. They've given up on their faith when they've been faced with that question. And I think part of the reason is that there's really two ways to approach this question. There is an intellectual response and there is an emotional response to that question. So down through the centuries, philosophers, theologians, really, really smart people, they have come up with compelling arguments for the goodness and justice of God. Now they've said that from God's eternal perspective, he sees all the activity on earth, and because he's sovereign, because he holds justice in his hand, that ultimately the wicked will be punished for their wrongs. This is how one of the first Christian writers, a guy called Paul, he put it like this. He said, For a day of anger is coming, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. 
Now, when you pull into the car park, then there's a Porsche taking up two spaces, and you know this, you find it quite reassuring, don't you? You know, that Porsche, he is going to be poured out God's anger and wrath on that guy. But really, it's kind of cold comfort when you personally are genuinely under pressure. You know, when you're overlooked, when you're oppressed, when you're overloaded, when the kids are running right, when your job is uncertain, when your marriage is on the rocks. Those are the times when the intellectual answer just doesn't cut it. And I think the reason is that often intellectual answers don't solve emotional problems. That's why in January, for the last few weeks, we've been <clears throat> tracking through a bunch of ancient songs. About 3,000 years ago, uh, a collection of songwriters composed a bunch of songs which we now know as the Psalms. And this morning, I just want to share with you a psalm which, which does something that, that intellectual stuff can't what only poetry and songs can do. Because unfortunately, the music of these songs has been lost over the centuries, but we still have the lyrics. And these lyrics put, into a, put words around our emotions. They help us understand and express some of those emotional questions that we have. So I'm going to share a psalm with you this morning which really wrestles with this question, <clears throat> why do good things happen to bad people? And it's simply titled Psalm 73. You might find it in your Bible. You can open it or swipe there or whatever. Join with me as we track through it. The first thing you'll notice about the psalm is that it is titled A Psalm of Asaph. This is the author. This is the songwriter who wrote the song. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, hang on. Asaph, isn't he that guy who wrote all those stories about animals and about learning virtues and all that sort of good stuff? That's Aesop, all right. He was Greek. Uh, he lived at a totally different time, okay? So this is Asaph. He was Jewish, and he lived about 3,000 years ago in a place which we know now as modern-day Israel. And so Asaph was a musician. His job was working at the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and according to First Chronicles chapter 16, his job was to sound the cymbals, right? What a job. All right, you ready? Okay, bit's coming up in the music. It's my turn, it's my turn! I mean, it's probably a little bit more complicated than that, but, you know, he's sound the symbols. He was actually also a worship leader. So he, along with a handful of others, had the responsibility of leading the Jewish people in worship. And you'd think that there'd be a real depth of character to him. You know, having uh, that responsibility of being a worship leader, you know, it's a pretty big deal. And so we would assume that he's in a good place with God. I mean, he works at the temple, he leads people in worship, he's probably pretty spiritually healthy, pretty strong in the faith type of guy, right? Well, let's see what he writes in this song. Psalm 73, starting at verse 1. Sorry, over the page. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing, my feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. I don't know about you, but I find that a fascinating introduction. Verse 1, he says, truly God is good. Verse 2, but I almost lost my footing, my feet were slipping. You know, it's like Asaph knows the intellectual answers. He knows God is good. But in that second line, he's like, personally, you know what, emotionally, 
I'm just not seeing it. I'm not experiencing God's goodness in my life, and I'm pretty close to giving up. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Maybe you're struggling with the questions around God's justice and his fairness in your life. We need to be reassured that Asaph, one of the main worship leaders for the nation of Israel, struggled with these questions. You need to know that Asaph, the guy who worked in the very place where the presence of God dwelt, wrestled with these issues. And I hope that that gives you permission to press into God as you grind through your questions. So Asaph, intellectually, he knew that God is good, that he had things under control, but emotionally it seems like he's struggling. And when we see good things happen to bad people, when we're faced with injustice or unfairness in the world, there's really there's three perspectives that I think we can have. And Asaph tracks us through each of them. The first thing he does is he looks around. Let's read on, starting at verse 3. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's, go- what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. You know, there's uh, no prize for guessing what Asaph's pet peeve is. Clearly he's upset when the proud and the wicked seem to prosper. In fact, if you went through that section, you'll see that the words they, them, and their, he writes about 16 times just in that section alone. And these people that he's writing about, they are the people who have deliberately turned their back on God. They have strutting around, they are scoffing, they are boasting pretty much against God, and yet everything seems sweet. Their life seems good. They have health, they have wealth, they have prestige, they have power. And this is how he puts it in verse 7. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. I you love that line. That, was, that is a great line in a song, isn't it? You don't hear lines like that in the modern church worship music, do you? But Asaph's wrestling with this question, where is the justice? Where is the fairness? In fact, Asaph wonders what God is doing about this. In fact, verse 11, he says, does God even know what these wicked people are doing? And so he looks around and he wonders if God's even present. And perhaps you've done that too. Maybe it's at work, at home, at school, in our country, in our world. You see corruption, you see abuse, you see arrogance, you see excess. And it's just disheartening. But you know, if all we do is look around at the brokenness of the world, then we're going to end up like Asaph. We're going to be upset. We're going to be discouraged and disheartened by the injustices that we see. So Asaph changes his perspective. He shifts his focus a little bit. And, and in the second part of this psalm, he looks within. 
Look at uh, what he writes in verse 13. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. You know, this part, he's just really letting out his emotions, isn't he? He sees that the wicked are winning, and what makes it doubly hard is that he feels like he's losing. And so there's this real frustration, this angst deep within him, his soul. He's, he feels like he's held up his end of the deal. But yet he's still suffering. He's been good, he's done right, and for what? In fact, in verse 13, he questions, has it been worth it? And I wonder if we're honest, you know, that is our default setting. If we do our bit, God should do his bit. And if God is so generous and gracious, then, then why doesn't he show me more goodness, especially in the times when I need it most? You know, Asaph tries to understand that, and he comes up empty. This is what he writes in the next couple of lines. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Asaph's looked around, and he's been discouraged by the prosperity of the wicked. And then he's looked within, and he's been confused. He's questioned the value of his own efforts. He's, he's wondered if God is even there. But then he makes a conscious choice to change his perspective. Let's pick it up at verse 17. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. You know, he gets a new perspective. And did you, did you notice where it starts? Verse 17, he went into God's sanctuary. He goes to the temple to spend time with God, to worship God, to commune and connect with God. And I think in that moment, Asaph looks up. I find that simplicity really refreshing. As he worships God, Asaph gets a greater perspective. He sees the grand plan. And this is a real turnaround from the start of uh, his, his song here. Remember, his pet peeve was with the arrogant, with the proud. And he thought their life was easy and perfect. They were getting away with all this abuse and excess. And then he realizes that justice will be served, that there will be a reckoning for the wicked, that those who ignore God will ultimately bear the consequences of their actions. And this actually caused Asaph to really check his motives. Look what he writes next. Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. You know, as he worships God, he realizes that his eyes have drifted. He's lost his perspective. And so as he goes to the sanctuary, as he worships God, he reorients his focus. He regains his perspective. And, and look at what he writes in this. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious 
destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. What a contrast to the start of that song. You know, where he was losing his footing, where his feet were slipping. Now his feet are firmly planted in faith. He sees the bigger picture. He sees that God is his forever. Some of you might be familiar with the Miss Universe beauty pageant. It's pretty well known for normally each year someone falls over on the catwalk or someone talks about how they're going to secure world peace and that sort of stuff. And in 2015, the competition became famous for basically having the most awkward experience on live TV. So 80 contestants, 80 beautiful women had gone through several events and right at the very end, it was announced that Miss Columbia had won. And you know, the music started pumping and there was clapping and the glitter was falling from the roof and everything. And Miss Columbia, she gets the crown on her head and she gets the sash across her shoulder and she gets the bouquet of flowers. And it's all very, very lovely. And then moments later, the host comes out and on live TV apologizes because he has made a mistake. He has read his cue card wrong and actually Miss Philippines won. And so then what, was un- what unfolded was um, perhaps the most awkward experience on live TV. Miss Columbia, here's a picture of her. She had to have the crown taken off her head and placed on Miss Philippines, the sash that had to come off as well. And that was replaced. And then the bokeh flowers. And it just, just kind of was really, really awkward. Miss Columbia, she wore the crown of Miss Universe for four minutes, exactly 240 seconds. But she wasn't the true winner. Turns out that Miss Philippines was the real winner and that ultimately she was able to wear the crown forever. Now, you might think this is a bit of a stretch, but I think there's some similarities between Miss Universe 2015 and ASAF, okay? Obviously, he was, I mean, he was probably a handsome man. We don't know that for sure, but I'm assuming he was. Uh, he didn't go on a beauty pageant, if that's what you're wondering. But when Asaph connected with God, he saw life from God's perspective. And he realized that the proud and the wicked would only wear the crown for a few fleeting moments, just a few seconds in the grand scheme of things. But those who trust God get to wear the crown forever. And I think that's why he finishes the song with these last few lines. He writes this, Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. You know, those last few lines Asaph gives us a hint about how we can gain this bigger perspective when we're wrestling with some of these big questions. You'll see that he encourages us to be near to God. And maybe for you this year, that means digging into your Bible again, or getting a good reading plan and just, you know, tracking through that. Perhaps for you, it's about getting some worship music and, and making a playlist that's on your phone or in your car or wherever you listen to music. Perhaps it's about making Sunday morning a priority. 
or your home group a priority, or your ministry team a priority this year. Maybe it's about meeting up with a mentor or just being really intentional about your spiritual growth. ASAF also encourages us to seek shelter in God. And I think the question all of us need to ask is, when times are tough, how quickly do we turn to God? You know, getting down on your knees in prayer, is that our default setting or is it a last resort? You know, for me, I don't turn to prayer quickly enough when things are challenging. And finally, Asaph tells us or encourages us to tell others about the wonderful things that God does. So I'm just going to invite you now for 20 seconds to just pause and quietly think about a time where God has proved his faithfulness to you. Perhaps this year you could make uh, one of your goals to record your story. And over the coming weeks and months, we're going to be encouraging people here to share their testimonies, particularly as the year progresses. I think that's because all of us have some amazing stories. You know, God has been faithful in each of our lives through the highs and through the lows, whether it's illness or debt or depression or injustice or divorce or loneliness or loss. Whatever it is, God has been tracking alongside us. And I think when you share your story with someone else, when you tell about how God has been faithful through your storm, that may be just the encouragement and the peace that someone needs when they are in their storm. So I encourage you this year to maybe consider writing down some of your journey, talking about your testimony, and particularly thinking about how you came to discover and to believe and to trust in God. And if you haven't, come to discover and believe and trust in God, then talk with me, talk with a friend, talk with someone wearing a blue tag here. We would love to chat with you. Because when you look up, when you see God, it changes everything. You have a freshness, a fullness, a freedom. You get some new perspectives on those tough questions in life. Recently, we have been on holiday as a family and we went to Christchurch. And we, one of the things we did in Christchurch was we went to the Antarctic Centre, which is a really cool place. Um, so that's okay. I'll give it time. It's a slow burn. Some of you are just getting it now. So they got penguins there. <clears throat> They've got a cold room, which you can go in and stand, and it replicates a storm. They've got the all-terrain vehicles that they drive around in Antarctica and stuff. But one of the things they have is a, a theatre. And you go into this theatre and you get given some special glasses because it's a 3D movie, right? These are not them. I did not steal them. I've borrowed them from somewhere else, okay? But these are actual 3D glasses. And you go to the theatre and you sit down and you put on these glasses and when they play the movie, which is all about Antarctica and stuff, these images just come come right directly out of the screen. So the movie's about Antarctica, so there's icebergs just bulging out of the screen right in front of you, and there's these stalactites just pointing like they're going to come right at your chest, and there's penguins shuffling around, kind of just, just not that far from sort of your face. And some of the people I was sitting around were reaching out to try and touch these um, images. They, they look very, very realistic. Anyway, halfway through the movie... I took off the glasses, I know, pretty rebellious, but I did, and I looked at the screen. And if you've ever done that in a 3D movie, you know that the screen is very blurry. 
everything's all fuzzy and the images were out of focus. It was so bad that I got a pretty quick headache and I put my 3D glasses back on. And when I put those 3D glasses back on, I got the right perspective. Everything was how it was meant to be. And I wonder if, as he wrote this psalm, it was like Asaph put on some 3D glasses. As he tracked through, he saw how everything was meant to be. When he spent time with God, when he worshipped God, when he looked up, he gained an understanding of life from God's perspective. He found satisfaction for his soul. And maybe you are searching for satisfaction for your soul. Maybe you have been discouraged because you see good things happening to bad people. And I urge you to try and see things from God's perspective, to spend some time with God and to put on your spiritual 3D glasses. Because if you do, you'll see things from a much bigger, a much fuller, a much more forever perspective, the perspective that God offers. One of the people who did that was a guy called Paul, and um, he had experienced some, a number of hardships in his life. He was disillusioned, he was discouraged, and at times he was disheartened. But then he wrote this, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vast outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. You know, I know some of you are facing challenges and struggles. And please know that I'm not trying to minimize the hardships that you're going through or the questions that you have. I'm simply trying to maximize your view of God. And so, friends, I encourage you to look up, to hold tight, and to trust God every day.